Amen. Well, tonight we're finishing up the second chapter of John's Gospel. Jesus has just performed His first miracle at the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine, showing His power over creation. And tonight we're going to see Him focusing on, on something new, um, which is going to be the Passover feast. And the Passover feast is, is something that's actually central uh, in, John, in John's Gospel. And from the uh, beginning of Jesus' ministry all throughout the Passover will be a regular theme throughout John. This will be our first time seeing Jesus in Jerusalem during His public ministry. It'll be His first trip to the temple and His first clash with the Jewish leaders. And in this, we may see some things about Jesus that actually surprise us, some things that we don't often talk about, some things that we just kind of gloss over or sometimes we just tend to forget. So let's look at our text tonight. We're in John chapter 2, at Christ turning over the tables in the temple, starting in verse 13. It says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who were selling the pigeons, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your father's house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said then, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. They saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." So Jesus, he went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is actually the first of three Passover feasts that we will see in John's gospel. We're going to see the Passover feast again in John chapter 6, and then finally in John chapter 11. And since the Passover, it plays such a central role in John's gospel, I think we need to better understand the history and significance of the feast and what all was entailed in all of that. The Passover, it was the major feast of the Jewish religion. There were many other feasts that they had, but this is the one that was the most important. This is the one that was most sacred and holy and the one that everybody focused on. And of course, we know that the Passover feast served as a remembrance of what happened with the 10th plague in Exodus chapter 12. That first Passover, of course, it brought the death of the firstborn of Egypt while Israel was spared. In turn, in the last Passover of John, in chapter 11, we will see the ultimate Passover with Christ serving as the perfect lamb sacrifice. And by His blood, the Lord passes over those who believe in His name. That is the true Israel of God. In the original Passover, we see the specific instructions given to the Hebrews about what they were supposed to eat, what they were supposed to drink, what they were supposed to do, how they were supposed to act. And we see this in Exodus chapter 12. So let's look at that a little bit this evening. In Exodus 12, starting in verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat, which ironically makes a cross. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but it must be roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, and your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet strapped up, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt." Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leavened bread is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native to the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread." So as we know, the first Passover, it did set the stage for the Lord to strike the firstborn of Egypt. And as the Bible tells us, a cry went up out from the land that was far worse than anything that had ever been heard before or would ever be heard again. And of course, we know that only lasted for a short time because Pharaoh, he, he released the Hebrews. He, he said, okay, you may go. All our firstborn are dead. We understand your God is God. Go, get out of here, get out of Egypt. But like I said, that lasted for a short time before they chased after the Israelites and met their destruction at the Red Sea. But the Passover peace, feast, Passover peace, feast, peace, peace, it was to serve two purposes. First was the remembrance for what the Lord had accomplished in Egypt, bringing them out of slavery. And now, as we know, it was a foreshadow of looking forward to the events that would happen at Calvary centuries later. So the feast, it was, it was a big deal. All the, all the uh, Jews would be traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast as a pilgrimage and make their sacrifices for the Passover. And it is in this context that we find our passage tonight. Jesus, he was, 
He was making the same pilgrimage as we see in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He made this pilgrimage every year of his public ministry, but this was not something that he just started doing for his public ministry. This is something he had always done from the time that he was a kid. He had done it his whole life. In Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now in this passage in Luke, we see the boy Jesus at age 12 teaching in the temple. It's the last time we hear anything of Jesus before his public ministry started in John chapter 1. But here we have him going up to Jerusalem for the Passover as he would do every year. And what he found in the temple courts absolutely disgusted him. John 2 verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So we see Jesus cleansing the temple. As well as we see it here in, in John's gospel, we see him also doing this in all three of the, the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels because they, they typically follow the same patterns. They have the same stories and with much similarity. They're, they're very close to the same with just minor differences. John would be the oddball of this group. His account is completely different. So there's two major schools of thought on this. The first is this, that... The synoptic versions of the cleansing of the temple and the version that we see here in John are actually the same event. And that John simply placed it at a different timeline just to fit the theological purposes of what he was writing. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is that Jesus cleansed the temple not once, but twice. And there are a few problems with the first view. The synoptics, they put their cleansing of the temple during the Passion Week at the end of Christ's ministry. John obviously puts it here at the very beginning of his ministry. But there are other significant differences as well. And so I want to read Mark's account of Jesus cleansing the temple. It's found in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 15. It says, And they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So let's, let's look at the differences between these two accounts. In John, he makes a whip of cords and drives them out. In the synoptics, he immediately starts turning over the tables. In the synoptics, Jesus, he cites two Old Testament passages, the first being Isaiah 56, 7, which says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And the second passage he cites was Jeremiah 7.11. It says this, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. When John's gospel, he tells them, he doesn't say, you know, you're making my house, my father's house a den of robbers. He tells them to stop making his father's house a house of trade. There's also a reference to the Old Testament in John's gospel, but it's what his disciples remembered, which is found in Psalm 69, 9, 
which says, For your zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So my position, I think we have to look at these events as two separate events. We see him cleansing the temple twice. I want us to understand the scene that we're looking at. We're at the Passover week. We've got hundreds of thousands of Jews filtering into Jerusalem to, to the Temple Mount to make their sacrifices, but also to pay a temple tax, which is why we find the money changers here. So what was the temple tax? The temple tax was an annual tax that the adults had to give each and every year. It was a census tax, and it was commanded in Exodus chapter 30. And so Exodus 30, starting in verse 11, says this, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel which is twenty garaz, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord, and everyone who is numbered in the census from age twenty upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So I want to make sure we're clear on something. Jesus is not upset about the tax being collected. He's not protesting the tax. The tax was commanded in Scripture, and we actually know that Jesus paid the tax himself. In Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, it says this, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus had no problem with the taxes. He, he paid the taxes. It was commanded. It was part of the law. And remember, Jesus kept the law perfectly throughout his entire life. He's the only person to ever do so. So these money changers that are in the temple, they're actually here for a purpose. Their purpose is they're coming to change out money coming from foreign lands, namely Rome. They wanted to change it out, and there's uh, approved coinage that they were allowed to have. It was coins from the place called Tyre. Uh, these are called Tyrrhenian coins. And there are a couple reasons given for why these were the only ones that were accepted in Jewish law. Some believe that it was to make sure that they weren't offering coins as part of the temple sacrifice that had pagan images of Caesar and Roman gods on them. And the other is because of the actual quality and purity of the Tyrrhenian coins themselves. It was a pure silver. And some say it was both. But whatever the reason, the money had to be changed out based on Jewish law. So you had these, uh, these money changers sitting here collecting the foreign money, changing it out for the Tyrrhenian coins. So what Jesus was actually objecting to was not that this was taking place, it was where it was taking place, that it was being done on the temple grounds themselves, as well as the selling of animals for sacrifices on the temple grounds themselves, because this was an outright assault. This was an assault on the holiness of the temple. 
because these people were out here to make, make money off of what they were doing, what should have been a, a holy place, a place fully devoted to God. It was corruption at the deepest level. It was corrupt because it was a money-making machine. These people knew that these people were going to pay the money because they had to pay the tax. They had to make the sacrifice. They had no choice. So they were going to pay it. So these money changers, they were actually charging interest on the coins that they were changing out. They were uh, exorbitantly charging for the animals making sacrifice. They They were making a killing off of this. Corruption at the deepest level, taking advantage of the Jews simply because of their religion and what was required of them. So Jesus sees this and he gets angry in chapter 2, verse 14 of John. It says, In the temple he found those selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and told those selling pigeons, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a market. He's infuriated by what he sees going on at at the temple. It's his father's house, supposed to be a holy place. So what did he do? He, he makes a whip, starts chasing them out with a whip. Now, if someone's running after me with a whip, I'm going to start moving on pretty quick. I'm going to get out of there. He drives them out, dumps the coins all over the floor, turns over the tables. Now, this is, this is not passive. This is, this is not a timid, shy action as we so often try to paint Jesus in our, in our minds it was, it was abrupt. It was bold. It was fierce. He was taking authoritative action. And we see a, a few things in this. The first thing we see is being angry is not a sin. Being angry is not a sin. There are things that we must necessarily be angry at. We must be angry when we see people going against God, defaming His name, desecrating His house, His church, and His people. And that means... Being angry when we see injustice towards people because all people are being made in the image of God. Those things should absolutely make us angry. That's why Paul quotes Psalm 37, 8 when he wrote to to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Righteous uh, Righteous anger, it's not a sin. But we must not let our anger turn into bitterness. As Paul continued in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, it says, Give no opportunity to the devil. Let no thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, and let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and anger and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So Jesus, he was not sinning. Obviously, we know Jesus did not sin. He was not sinning by being angry and cleansing the temple. This was a righteous anger. And we are also to have righteous anger at things that we should be angry about. The second thing we see from Jesus is that Jesus was not politically correct by any stretch of the imagination. You know, we live in a politically correct culture, a culture that says you cannot question established practices. You can't uh, question accepted 
truths of the culture and accepted thought, you must be, what's the word? Tolerant, which is ironic because they don't tolerate biblical Christianity, but we have to tolerate them, you know, this politically correct culture. You know, I graduated from from Liberty University, and uh, when I first started at Liberty, I bought this uh, this T-shirt that said uh, Liberty University, politically incorrect since 1971. It was a it was a cute T-shirt, but it, it had a big point. We need to stand on truth, to stand up for the gospel, to speak biblical truth. We must necessarily be politically incorrect. I, I hate hearing people say, well, that's not politically correct. I'm like, good, I don't want to be politically correct. Jesus wasn't politically correct. We should not be ashamed about it either. Paul said in Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In fact, to be ashamed of the gospel, to be timid about the gospel, is dangerous. Why? Look at Mark 8, 38. It says, for Jesus speaking, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We cannot be ashamed We cannot be timid. We cannot be shy. We can't be afraid to offend somebody. Do you think Jesus was worried about offending the money changers in the temple? I mean, if you're chasing them around with whips, if you're chasing them, you're turning over their tables, dumping their money on the floor, turning everything upside down. I I don't think he was worried about what they were thinking at that moment. We must be bold. We must proclaim the truth. And I think so often we hear about the love and compassion of Christ and everyone says, well, what would Jesus do? Well, that is a great question. What would Jesus do? But the problem is when people ask that, they only want to look at certain things Jesus did. But we need to look at everything that Jesus did, not just the parts that give us warm, fuzzy feelings and visions of butterflies and unicorns. At the same time, We need to be careful about what we do. We need to make sure that we are biblically correct in all that we say and do before we start going out and turning over some tables. And remember, we must always take the log out of our own eye before we try and remove the speck out of someone else's. But we also need to take special note of something that John points out here. Jesus is turning over the tables. He's chasing out the animals. And oxen and sheep, those would be fairly easy to round up. I mean, we live, in, we live in farm country. We know what it's like to round up some sheep or goats or cattle, and it can be a pain, but it can be done fairly, fairly easily. But doves and pigeons, now that would be a different story if you start releasing those everywhere. But notice Jesus did not drive out the birds. Look in verse 16. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He wasn't out to hurt the money changers. He wasn't out to destroy property. He told those with the birds to take them away. He didn't release them. He's not saying, you know what? There go your birds. Sorry. No, he, in his righteous anger, he still took care not to hurt physically. Yes, I'm sure their pride was hurt. 
their feelings were hurt. I'm sure they were probably pretty angry about the situation. They were inconvenienced, I'm sure. They were definitely offended. But there was no real loss suffered. There was no real harm done to them. Again, we need to be wise when we go to rebuke and when we turn over our tables, so to speak. We should not shy away from speaking the truth and standing up for the Gospels, but we need to make sure we're doing it in a biblical and godly way. But don't be afraid to hurt someone's feelings just because you're speaking the truth. The cleansing of the temple, it also showed us again that He is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And as I said earlier, this is a quote from Psalm 69.9 that fully says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen onto me. And we know that is definitely true of what happened to Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they didn't really love God. And that hatred of God, because God wasn't who they wanted Him to be, fell on Jesus at the cross. Again, as we've talked about almost every time we've been together in John, he's writing this so we know that Jesus is the Christ. We know that He is the Savior, the Son of God, the one and only, that we might believe in His name. But Jesus, he's, he's now started a ruckus by every stretch of the imagination. And the Jewish leaders, this is the first time we're going to see them really butt heads and clash with Jesus. They want some answers. Verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? What sign will you show us? What they're really saying is the same thing that they said to John the Baptist in chapter one. What they're really saying is, what authority do you have to start doing this? What, who are you to come in here to the temple in the holiest of feasts, start turning over these tables, taking away these animals for sacrifice. Who do you think you are? They want some answers. Who are you to come into our temple and disrupt everything? Well, as we will see as usual, Jesus had an answer for them. Verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple. And I, in three days, I will raise it up. Now the Jews they had no idea what he was talking about. No earthly idea what Jesus was talking about. They were so confused. And we see it in verse 20. It says, the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it up in three days? Who are you? How are you going to do this? We, we've, we've spent decades building this and you think you can build it in three days? You see, the temple that they were standing in, it wasn't even completed yet. They weren't even done, done building it. In fact, it wouldn't be completely rebuilt until um, just shortly after A.D. 60, 30-some years later. And that was just a few short years before, after they got it done being built, it was going to be totally destroyed by the Romans. Up until this point, it had been under construction. It had been 46 years to get the temple to the point where it was at this passage. It was functional. It was usable but it was not yet completed. Yet Jesus is now saying that if they destroy the temple, he's going to raise it up in three days. Of course the Jews didn't know what Jesus was referring to, but verse 21 says he was speaking about the temple 
of his body. He didn't care about that building. That wasn't what was important. He cared about the truth of who he was and what he was going to do. He was foretelling his death and resurrection. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus knew his purpose. He knew what he was sent here to do. It wasn't something that he was discovering. You know, some people actually believe that, that Jesus was just living his life, had no idea what was coming next. That couldn't be further from the truth. He was God. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly why he was there, what he was going to do. He was going to redeem sinners. He was going to save us. That's what he was going to do, and he knew what that would take. But the Jews, however did remember what Jesus had said here that day, that he would rebuild the temple in three days. In fact, they used these very words to mock him during his trial and at the cross. Let's look in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 61. It says this, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, of course, that isn't exactly what Jesus said, but that's what they testified against him. So they remembered him saying this. And then even at the cross, Matthew 27, verses 38 through 43, it says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, why don't you save yourself? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, Well, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from his cross. And then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he told us, I am the Son of God. You said you could rebuild the temple in three days. Well, if you have that kind of power, why don't you take yourself out of this position? You can save yourself, can't you? I mean, isn't that what you said? That you're the Son of God? That you're the Savior? Yet you, you're sitting here being executed. You must not be that powerful. They mocked Him as they crucified Him. They used his own words against him to give false witness about him, to mock him, discredit him, talking about things that they knew absolutely nothing about. Well, it, wasn't, it wasn't just the Jewish leaders who did not understand what Jesus was talking about. Clearly, his disciples did not understand either. They didn't know what he was talking about. Look at verse 22 in John 2. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken, it wasn't until later that the disciples finally understood what was going on. I have to remember, they didn't quite even understand what was going on at the crucifixion. They didn't understand even when they were told about the resurrection. At the crucifixion, only John, who is the author of our text tonight, he was the only one recorded as actually being there. Peter, he had denied Christ three times at the trial. He was scared to death. He didn't think Christ was going to be victorious over this. They didn't understand. And after the resurrection, even, they still didn't understand. If you look in Luke chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, it says this. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. It was 
Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and the mother, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. What did Jesus say to the disciples? O ye of little faith. Of course, you know, we have the benefit of knowing the whole story. So we shouldn't really condemn the disciples. They, you know, we don't know what it was like to be there in that time and in that moment. I probably would have been scared to death too. You've just seen their Savior crucified. They're on the run. They're afraid the same thing is going to happen to them. And they don't believe it. They didn't immediately understand what happened at the resurrection. They had not put two and two together. But they got there eventually. Because back in John 2, verse 22, it says, When he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoke. Now, scripture being referenced is likely Psalm 1610. I'm reading this one out of the New Living Translation. It says this, For you will not leave my soul among the dead, or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. So they remembered that the scriptures had foretold this, that Jesus would be raised from the dead. The scriptures told the Jews and anyone who would believe and read exactly what would happen to Christ. It wasn't a secret. God didn't make a secret of what his plan was, if you were paying attention. I mean, he told us this all the way from Genesis. We see it uh, for centuries, the foreshadowing of Christ's death. We see it in Abraham and Isaac. We see it in the story of Joseph and his brothers. We see it in the Passover of Exodus. We see it in the sacrificial system. We see it in the Psalms as we just read. We read about it in the prophets. He didn't make his plan a secret. He told, told them exactly what was going to happen. And now the disciples remembered this, that this was always God's plan. This is exactly how God envisioned it. And what a great and perfect plan it was. You know, when we think about what God did for us, sending His only Son to die on that cross in our place, bearing the shame of that cross to be risen from the dead, making Him conqueror of sin and death, we should realize that we owe everything to God. It's the most beautiful love story that has ever been told. It's the best story that we have here on this Sunday night before Valentine's Day. The story of redemption is just one big love story. What a great, mighty, loving, compassionate, merciful God that we serve. For God so loved the world, as we'll see next week, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. In the last three verses of chapter 2, they're, they're here to serve as a bridge for what we're going to see and happen in chapter 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus. In verses 23 and 25 of John 2, it says this, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. These verses, they're crucial for us to understand what happens next. 
And we'll, we'll talk about when we get into chapter 3. There were many people believing in what they saw Jesus doing. They weren't really believing in Him. They, they had a shallow faith, a superficial faith. It wasn't, wasn't a saving faith. They were not entrusting their salvation to Him. They weren't trusting in who He was. They weren't relying on Him for justification of their sins. They just saw Him as a, as a teacher who could do signs and wonders, as some sort of prophet. And in that sense, they believed in Him, but they weren't relying on Him as the Messiah that would take away their sin. Jesus, therefore, He didn't entrust Himself to them. He knew what was in their hearts, just as He knows what is in your heart and my heart. He knew they did not truly believe in Him and who He was. You know, belief, it's not, it's not a head knowledge, as we've, we've talked about. It's so much more than that. It is, is fully and wholly putting your trust in the Savior for who He is and what He has done, and that He will carry you and carry your sins away so that you would be redeemed. It is fully trusting Him as Lord and Savior, making Him the Lord of your life. That's not just simply acknowledging, yes, I believe in Jesus. So much deeper than that. We'll see more of this when we get into chapter 3 next week. But what we need to take away is just the boldness of Christ, the, the love of Christ, and the boldly stand for truth. We need to trust the Scriptures. We need to take a stand for the Scriptures, especially today when we see people just trampling the Scriptures, when we see churches trampling the scriptures, when we see denominations like our own trampling on the scriptures, we need to know that Christ has been raised from the dead, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's not dead, he's alive. He actually accomplished something on the cross. And even though he told the Jews right here in chapter 3 exactly what was going to happen, they still didn't understand. And while they may have had somewhat of an excuse, not really, but kind of, we have no excuse because we have the whole story. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for who you are, for what you've done, Lord. And we just ask for the, the power and strength, Lord, to be bold as lions, to not shy away from standing up for truth, to be angry at the things that we should be angry at, just as your son was. That we would be righteous in our anger, but not fall into bitterness and wrath and malice. That you would guide us in wisdom and truth of your word. Be with us as we go throughout this week, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.